G'day wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truthtoyou.org. That's truth number two, letter you.org. I'm Jono and joining me all the way from Louisiana is my very good friend and co-host of the Tanakh Tour, Ross Nichols. G'day, my friend. Hello, Jono. How's it going, man? Oh, man, you know how it's going. We're we're both so excited. We're both beside ourselves. I I just can't contain it. Um, Listeners will know that they're like, you know... (laughs) There's so many things that we've been doing of, of late in this past year that we fully intended to uh, continue with, and we may still, um, and I'm referring to, to various uh, series that, that we began, uh, one of which is, is Dr. James Table's uh, Gleanings from Genesis, of course, the, the book of Genesis from the Transparent English Bible. Uh, we'll be getting back to that, and good day to Dr. James Table. But the reason why, we don't have to go into all the details, Russ, but the reason why we've been so seemingly distracted over the last year more than a year it's my fault it's my fault jonah (laughs) just tell the listeners it's my fault because it is and you know it and i know it and james (laughs) Tabor knows it it's my fault i'm sorry no but that's all i can say (laughs) the the thing is is that we've been absolutely thoroughly distracted uh and and drawn into uh irreversibly so uh, the story that you have been, the book that you have been writing now, oh my goodness, I tell you, both you and I have been wanting to talk about this in detail for a long time, and there's no end yeah. to to the That's amount right. of discussion that needs to be um, explored regarding the topic that you have so meticulously, uh, just so deeply researched uh, and produced this incredible book. There's some very big news regarding the book and this particular topic today. Where do we start? This is the thing. To, I can't even, like for months, I, I kid you not, for months, I've, I have thought about this very conversation, having this conversation with you online, on air, on truth to you, to our wonderful listeners. And all I can think is, where do you begin with this? Where do we begin? You know, I, And let let me add, let me add this. It is my honor that we have this conversation. You realize this is the first official uh, recording uh, to your listeners on Truth To You about this project that we have been chomping at the bits to talk about. So your listeners get, and, and I wouldn't have it any other way. It is an honor I'm excited about it, and uh, it means the world to me that you would have me on to talk about this. This, this is hot and, off and the press say, for the truth to you listeners. With, Go ahead. With the, at, at, the risk, at the risk of someone saying, that's eh, a bit sensational, it is clearly the most controversial case in the history of biblical scholarship. I, it, I can't see any other way to say it. And that's why we put it on the book cover itself. We're mm. reopening the most controversial case in the history of biblical scholarship. That's what we're going to be talking about in this program. Now, before we do kick it off, uh, I just want to shout out uh, to just really quick special shout out to an 11 year old DJ in Oklahoma. G'day, DJ. Uh, his mother, hey, Frankie, DJ. tells me. Hey, his mother, Frankie, she, she tells me that uh, he's a big fan of truth to you. And he wants to go to Louisiana, Ross. He wants to go to Louisiana for Sukkot. Because uh, he apparently he has questions for um, for you and I. Uh, he has well, questions. 
Okay. All right. Well, you know right. what? That sounds like a fun deal to me, and it, and I welcome. There you go. All right. So now, I think was, I know. I think I know DJ too. He, you probably do. I I'm and he was upset when uh, when Frankie told DJ that it's most likely that I will not be there. I've never been to the U.S. Can you believe it? Well, I have the same question that DJ probably has. Why <laughs> would you not be here if he's coming here? Why would you not? Well, that's I mean, it. I, I want to be there to meet uh, uh, to meet DJ. All right, Can you keep an eye on this uh, DJ. We'll let you know. Amazing news in the New York Times and the Daily Mail. Shall we begin with this, or shall we tell them where do we begin? I'm going to let you begin, Ross. Where do we start? Uh, well, I tell you what, you threw it to me, and I'll say this: it just so happens now. I guess the first thing is, do you believe in coincidence? Because today, March the 10th, I wake up, and you and I have discussed this, it's like every day is something incredible in regard to this story. It just so happens that today I wake up, and Dr. James Tabor sends me an email first thing and says, you're not going to believe what just hit the New York Times. Now, it, I'll, I'll say it wasn't Ross Nichols has a book out, but get this. Here's the title. Mm-hmm. Is a long dismissed forgery actually the oldest known biblical manuscript? Now, that's a catchy title, even if you don't know what we know. Mm. It just so happens, Jono, that this article uh, by Jennifer Schusler is, uh, is about the Shapira scrolls that my book is about. So and that this, wasn't if that wasn't enough. Go ahead, go ahead, jump. No, well, this, this is the thing. Now you just you just you just brushed over something. You said it's like every day, you know, something happens where we're going. Wow, what a coincidence! Um, the, the whole last year and a half, uh, almost, has been like that. Where almost on a daily basis, certainly a weekly basis, something happens. Uh, that that either you or or I you know get on on the phone to each other and go this is going to blow your mind and sure enough it does this is just another example of that and it's been going on for almost a year and a half for us oh and here we brain. are and we're on air and we can't even get to it because we're so excited we're like children just jumping up and down it truly is remarkable and and you know James Tabor posted this morning, uh, excuse the fact that I'm so excited or something like that in his blog post. You know, he it's nice to have a friend who has a, a readership as wide as Dr. Tabor. Mm. This this goes out. He started uh, writing on the book as soon as I published it, you know, to an audience in the thousands who are reading about this right mm. now. We could not have imagined, Jono. You know, here's Dr. Tabor, a Ph.D., University of Chicago scholar, a Bible scholar, and he's so excited about this book. He's so invested in it, meaning he's been right there all along. He introduced me to the mm-hmm. subject. He, and, he did. And so he, he's excited, and here's a, a, an established scholar who's putting his, basically putting his reputation on the line by talking mm-hmm. about, I just read a, I just read a title that talks about is a long-dismissed forgery. Why would a biblical scholar from a, a superb university like University of Chicago mm. be willing to put his name on something? Answer mm-hmm. that, right? So, and here so, it is. He's and here publishing is. on his blog about it. All right. So let's let's back up just a little bit. And uh, because I, I know the truth to you listeners know this, um, but but for people that are just tuning in, uh, Ross has, for the last almost a year and a half, been uh, researching 
uh, for this book. It is now finally published. We're going to be talking about it for the rest of our lives, no doubt. And uh, and the book is called, it's entitled The Moses Scroll. It's available on Amazon. There is a link on this post, and I highly recommend more than more than any other book that I've ever dealt with. This is the one that you must have. Um, you need to order this quickly. Hundreds have already been dispatched uh, through Amazon, and it is still the number one bestseller in its category. Now, in two, um, two categories, in, in, two categories. Right. Two categories. <laughs> in two categories, yeah. number two- one new release. There you go, number one new release, and uh, and there's you know, it, it, <laughs> it blows my mind. Now, just just well, quickly, give us give us a real quick overview, wait, wait, just wait, a very high wait, level. Wait, okay, go. Wait before I do that. One other, as if it wasn't enough that I woke up to Tabor's email about, hey man, you're not going to believe this. Check the New York Times. While I'm still digesting that, Tabor puts out on his blog another. Post. We need to put these post links uh, uh, for Dr. Tabor's blog mm-hmm. where he mentions the scroll. He says that he has thousands hitting his blog as a result of these last couple mm. of emails. Now, he's got a busy blog anyway. Mm. But anyway, while that's going on, I also get another thing comes up. And this one is from the UK. The UK in the DailyMail.com published uh-huh. an article And this one says, has the mystery of the Shapira scroll finally been solved? Ancient manuscript dismissed as a fake since 1883 Mm. is actually the oldest known biblical script expert claims. Yeah. Now, how's that for a tantalizing intro to the book? That's that's incredible. Now, listen, um, just so that people know, like there's a lot of links floating around here. If they go to themosesscroll.com, themosesscroll.com, mm-hmm. uh, are you keeping uh, people up to date with uh, uh, articles and all this sort of stuff that's happening? So they can- no, Not yet. No, not yet. <laughs> You've got to get onto that. Time. You haven't even Look, had time. That, you know, I haven't had time, but I will. In fact, uh, thanks to Anna, uh, who's designed the web for me, uh, yeah, uh, I'm going to ask her, hey, let's get that blog going. And actually, she's going to say, Ross, I've already told you, I'm ready to do it, write a blog post. So there <laughs> will right. be a blog and so forth. So, so that's all right. very so that, that'll be coming soon where you can get all the information in, in one place, themosesscroll.com. Now, now, people, go go there and sign up to the newsletter because that's the way that you can uh, remain informed. And, uh, and obviously, as I said, we're going to be talking about this for a very long time. Do you want to give us a quick overview of what this book is about? And then can we talk about uh, the articles that came out today? Yeah, sure. So, so what? Let me tell people first of all how I even got involved in this, if that's mm. okay. I, I was already deeply into a study which I had, and you and I talked about this on a mm. previous program. Uh, what did Moses write? Basically, I was searching for what I called finding the hand of Moses. In other words, if you if you look at the Pentateuch. What the five books of Moses, as we call them, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, my question was, I'd been exposed to some academic articles and some books and so forth, which challenged the fact that Moses wrote anything at all, if he existed. Mm. Well, that was a challenge to my faith, so I began to really look into this. 
And so I, I, I was studying that material, and I even gave a lecture on it at a United Israel conference uh, a few years back. What I say, B.C., before COVID, when people could gather together in an auditorium and listen to a class. Remember that? <laughs> I remember those uh, days, yeah. And it, yeah, so I gave this talk, Finding the Hand of Moses. I'm working on what I thought was going to be a great book that it, that answers that challenging mm. question that the academic world puts forward. What did Moses write? So I get an email December the 19th, guess who, Dr. James Tabor, mm-hmm. who says, hey, Ross, you might want to check this article out. It is about uh, a scholar uh, who wrote a book, the, the Lost Book of Moses. His name is Hanan Tigay. Now, Hanan Tigay happens to be not only an established journalist and a brilliant writer, he's a fantastic writer, mm. uh, but his father is Jeffrey Tigay, who is the famous biblical scholar right. who is known throughout the world as a scholar of Deuteronomy. He wrote yeah. the JPS commentary on Deuteronomy. Now, brilliant can, can inter- family. The whole Let family. me interrupt you just yeah. for a second before we continue. Are we allowed to say how uh, how it was that James brought this uh, article to your attention, this book? Uh, yeah. You mean his how he came to that place? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, by the way, his finding this article, he was not searching for the, the book by Hanan Tigay. He had already had two close encounters, which he describes in the foreword to my book. He wrote the foreword, mm-hmm. uh, and his name is on my beautiful cover, which was designed by Daniel Wright. Shout out to Daniel Excellent. Wright. Oh, such a good job, is Daniel. That, yeah. Is that great? Yeah. Uh, so Daniel did the cover, and he also did the illustrations in the book. But anyway, uh, Dr. Tabor has many connections. He and Shimon, Dr. Shimon Gibson who is uh, a great scholar, 19th century is one of his specialties. He's, mm-hmm. he's uh, well known for his uh, knowledge of archaeology, one of the premier archaeologists, particularly in Jerusalem uh, of all time, I think. And uh, he specializes in 19th century. So Tabor and Shimon Gibson happened to be on a flight together uh, sometime, if I recall, around November of 2019. Mm-hmm. And they're they're on the flight. They end up sitting together. What is the coincidence there? And uh, they're talking, and it it comes up in conversation about Shapira, Moses Shapira, and and Tabor, obviously having a PhD in religion, he had come across the name early in his career in his educational programs, and he had basically taken the party line. Oh, it was a forgery, and into the story. Mm-hmm. Well. Here's Shimon Gibson, uh, who says, you know, I think it's worth taking another look at. We really need to look at this again. So so that gets him in the mode. You know, he's Mm. thinking, you know, I really need to look at that. Uh, A little bit later, he does this search. Now we're talking about December. December of 2019, he's searching for something else, and up pops this article in the Harvard Gazette about Hanan Tigay's search for these missing scroll fragments. Mm-hmm. Now, now, by the way, this is a great mystery, too. That's the reason the book is so good, is it's part history and part mystery. Mm. It's It's got everything in it. So, now, remember, I don't know anything about this yet. Tabor reads the article. He sends it to me. I'm blown away as I read this article because 
it says some things that trigger my thinking along the lines that I'm already writing about. Mm-hmm. Here's someone who says he thinks uh, he's searching for what possibly could be the oldest version of Deuteronomy that the world has ever seen. Yep. The mm-hmm. earliest version, right? So long story short, we both order the book within hours of each other, I would suppose. We both devour uh, Tagay's book. Hanan mm-hmm. Tagay is a brilliant writer. You know, this is my first book. I mean, it's it's fabulous. Now, I, I don't, we didn't arrive at the same conclusions. I'll tell the listeners that, but I'm not taking anything away from Tagay because by reading his book, I was left with my mouth open. I couldn't mm-hmm. put it down. And and so I immediately, I read it again, and I took notes. Now, the fun part about this is Jono Vandor's involved, because as soon as I start getting this stuff, I'm throwing it at you. You're yeah. ready to do a program on it. And I said, wait a minute, I, we can't talk about it yet. So long story short, I began to go to the original sources that Tagay mentioned in his book. I wanted to read the story from the sources. And one of the greatest questions that I had was, what did the scroll say? I mean, okay, some people said it was uh, fake and and it was dismissed. Where is it now? And what did it say? Mm. So what I found out during this research phase, and I I don't want to exclude anybody because James is right there. He and I are exchanging emails and text and phone calls and uh, and and we're we're both into this search. We're digging and researching, and and um, so one of the things that happens is I realize uh, very soon into this that three top Hebraists of the day, we're talking mm. 1883, uh, looked at this manuscript and and they made transcriptions of it. So I then looked up, I found their transcriptions, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. So here's here's the story of Moses Shapira. He was an established uh, antiquarian. He owned a bookstore and souvenir shop in the old city. Mm-hmm. Not just you've been there, you and I have been shopping together. We mm-hmm. bought things in, in these souvenirs. So you get the picture. It was inside Jaffa Gate, if you walk down David Street and turn on Christian Quarter Street, his shop was right in that area in 1883. In fact, it opened in 1861, and it was declared to be the best shop in Jerusalem. We have records in 1876, uh, a famous writer put it in his uh handbook for tourists that this was the best shop. So Shapira has a souvenir shop, but he's really well known as a person who deals in antiquities, primarily ancient old manuscripts. Mm -hmm. He went all over to the Yemen. He went to Arabia. He went all over the Middle East searching for and acquiring wonderful manuscripts. One thing that you were excited about was the Karite manuscripts that he found? You want right. to mention so, that? Yeah, well, he was a. Um, uh, I mean, a lot. A lot of what he recovered was sold to the British Museum. They, I mean, they kept in touch with him and were very keen to uh, to purchase from him anything that uh, he recovered. And uh, I think one hundred and eighty six Karite documents. Actually- 145, if my memory serves me right, of the specifically Karite manuscripts 
And and yes, he sold those to the British Museum. And to this mm. day, Jono, it's the greatest collection of Karaite manuscripts uh, in the world. And and these are old, very, very valuable. He also sold manuscripts to the Berlin Museum. And uh, so he was established in that sense. Mm-hmm. But he also happens to intersect with several other incredible stories of the time. So I'll give you a couple of examples. In uh, 1868, you've heard of the Moabite stone, the Mesha Stella. Sure. This particular stone discovered in the land of Moab. Uh, I tell all about it in the book, and I reveal some things that probably most people have no idea about. And I'm excited about that. And I can't wait until we go back to Israel and go to the museum and we can stand in front of that replica and I can tell the true story of what Mm. happened to it. Uh, so, so the Moabite Stella is discovered, and there's even, according to his daughter, Moses Shapira's daughter wrote a book later called The Little Daughter of Jerusalem, originally mm-hmm. published in French. And in that book, she says that Moses Shapira was involved in unearthing, actually discovering that. Uh, it was later shown to uh, a person, a Reverend Klein, he is accredited with actually being the first person to see it other than the Arabs. So mm-hmm. anyway, so when this discovery takes place, you can imagine this is a fantastic discovery. It is written in ancient Phoenician characters on black mm-hmm. basalt, and it becomes the talk of the academic world. The whole world says, here we have, for the first time, a story from the other side, let's say it this way, because we knew from First Kings chapter 3 that there was this, uh, this battle that mm-hmm. took place between Mesha, the king of Moab, uh, and uh, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and, and all of this stuff we knew from First Kings chapter 3. But the Moabite Stella tells the story from the Moabite side. This mm. was a monument erected by King... Um, the the king of Moab by the name of Mesha. Now, the interesting thing is that this was clearly identified as a true relic. It was dated to the eighth to ninth century BCE. Mm-hmm. All right. So there was no, now. I'm not going to say there wasn't anyone who thought that it wasn't real, but scholars have all accepted that it's authentic. Sure. And then after this. Um, that was in 1868, people began to get hungry for more antiquities. You have sort of a, an ongoing competition between the French, the Germans, the English, even the Americans crawl in there at some point. Mm-hmm. But they're all hoping to establish some great find to exalt their status in the world of biblical scholarship. Sure. So, So I'm going to quickly cover a couple of points, and the people have to read the book to get all of this. But there were a series of what we call Moabitica, statues, uh, things that were uh, brought forward from the land of Moab, which passed through Shapira's shop. Mm. Ultimately, ultimately, these were considered forgeries, and Shapira's reputation was somewhat tarnished by that. I don't shy away from it. I talk about it in the book. 
Shapiro was never uh, accused of being part of the forgery. In fact, he even questions the authenticity of some of these. Mm. But nonetheless, the Prussians purchased 1,700 pieces of this. That's, from a, that's a lot of pieces. So once again, there's a, uh, as you say, there was an archaeological frenzy that the whole world wanted to get in on and be, and be um, the notable country that discovered and, and procured these particular items. And as such, a lot of Moabitica, as you say, passed through the Moses Shapira shop. Now, uh, they did so via the hand of a particular employee. Can we talk about him briefly? Absolutely. His name was Salim Al-Kari. Mm-hmm. And uh, Salim Al-Kari was an Arab who worked with Shapira, interestingly enough. And uh, But he was well known uh, in the Transjordanian region. He had earned the respect of the Bedouin and, and had gone over many times earning their respect by you know, bringing them coffee and tobacco and things of that nature. And, so and he the fact, a, and the fact that he could read, he could, uh, as far as they were concerned, he could read various uh, languages, which impressed them, uh, which yeah. I think is, is, is where he got his name from. Is that fair? That's right. Al-Kari, uh, you know, we just mentioned the Karaites. The Karaites, mm. the name Karite is associated with uh, a scripturalist, one who reads the mm. scripture. Al-Kari is the reader. So Salim Al-Kari is known as a person who is able, he, he explains his own name this way in one place mm-hmm. that I mentioned in the book, as he gets this name, he says, from the Bedouin because he can read all these ancient languages. So Salim Al-Kari, he takes the hit. He ultimately is considered by many to be the forger. He escapes to Alexandria We don't hear about him again. But what we know is this. He truly was, uh, from what we can gather, he was at least conversant or or at least able to write these ancient languages because another character that figures into the story, particularly the Moabite Moabite stone, a Frenchman by the name of Monsieur Charles Clermont Ganneau. Yeah, he's he's our uh, he's our villain in the story, right? <laughs> uh, so, but Claremont Ganneau gets from Salim Al Kari uh, a transcription of seven lines of the Moabite stone, mm. which he uses to produce his transcription. And so, all of these characters. Now, I'll tell the reader that for about two and a half chapters, you'll be hit with a lot of different names and characters and. Events names, in the land yeah. of Moab. You have uh, Bedouin getting chased on horses and yeah. stabbed in the leg, and uh, <laughs> the destruction of. You ever wonder why the Moabite stone? If you look at the replica in the Israel Museum, or you see the original, it's in pieces that have been put back together. Mm, I tell the story in my book of why that is and and what's mm. going on there. Amazing. So, so um, the Moabitica sells seventeen hundred pieces to the Germans, Russia. the Prussians, and they paid the equivalent to Moses Shapiro of about four hundred thousand dollars in today's money, U.S. dollars. Now, so he does well. In, now he does well, but <laughs> in the uh, uh, in the contract, the the one that handles the contract, if I remember correctly, is a fellow by the name of Schlotman. Is that okay? Tell us a little bit about Schlotman. So Constantine Schlotman is uh, he also is a brilliant scholar. He's at the University of Halle in Germany, 
And um, he hears about all of the flurry of activity in Jerusalem, primarily because of a pastor by the name of Weber, who is uh, the pastor of a Protestant church in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. who happens to know Shapira. Shapira is married to a German woman by the name of Rosette. And uh, so he hears about it, he becomes interested, and he actually convinces the Prussians, hey, we need to buy this. Now, there's there's more of the background. We're just kind of glossing mm-hmm. over. You have to read the book to get Go it all. But I will say this. The thing about Schlotman uh, is that he he de- the Prussians don't want to get beat again because when Klein, who dis- who sees first before anybody else, he sees the Moabite stone, mm-hmm. the Prussians try to get it because they're wanting to be the first. So mm-hmm. they're trying to purchase it. Claremont Ganot swoops in on behalf of the French, mm-hmm. and he ultimately ends up uh, well, I don't want to give too much away, but it, he creates sort of a a problem in the land of Moab, and it mm. leads to the destruction of the Moabite stone. But uh, so all of this activity is going on in the background. I'm sure that readers might be reading it, and they'll say, wow, this is a lot of background, but I had to do Gotta it to it. introduce all yeah. the, the stuff. And it's, and it's a people. fascinating story in and of itself. It really, really is. Uh, and, and I had—I have to say—I had no idea uh, just how significant the Moabite stone was as a Paleo-Hebrew document uh, in stone, and the story behind it, and and why it's so important. Really, there's so many things about it. Um, it was absolutely necessary to go into some detail. There's fascinating story. Got to get the book. Keep going. Yep. And so Shapira, by the way, he is the shop owner, but what he really loves, Jono is antiquities. He mm. loves to go to the desert. He likes to ride his white mare off into the land of the east and and go and hunt these antiquities and chase down manuscripts in the Yemen and so forth. So mm-hmm. everything, remember, after this Moabitica is declared a forgery, even though they don't blame Shapira, his name is attached to it. It keeps yeah. coming up. You know what I mean? So here we go. 1878, hmm. uh, in the good. summer, 1878, uh, Shapira is at his shop, and he is approached in his shop by a band of Bedouin, various chiefs from different tribes of Bedouin. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's got a lot of connections. And they come to his shop, and in passing, you know, the conversation gets to antiquities. And one of the Bedouin tells Shapira... You know, about 10 years ago, there was a discovery of some blackened leather strips upon which were written some kind of ancient characters. Well, you can imagine, Shapira, his interest is piqued. He's mm. like, what are you talking about? So about, uh, one, of the, one of the sheiks, which he is friends with by the name of Sheik Arakat, Sheik Arakat tells him, hey, Moses, we're going to have a, a gathering at my home tomorrow, and you're invited, and you can talk about it then. Don't push it. Don't act too interested because they're going to take you for money, basically. You know, that I, have to, you, you see. I have to interrupt you. I have to interrupt you because um, I know we don't want to go into too much detail, but it's an interesting thing, yeah. and I think it's worth mentioning, that these black and leather strips were almost discarded as, as nothing 
Um, can we can we just go into a little bit of detail as because it wasn't it's yep. not as if it's not as if there were uh, Bedouin out conducting archaeological digs. These um, these blackened leather strips were happened upon uh, by yep. chance. And I'm going to uh, tell that. Go for it. Uh, I'm going to tell you. So he goes the next day. He rides his white mare. He goes to the neighboring village of Abu Dis. And Abu Dis is where Sheikh Arakat lives. And he has mm-hmm. a big house. We know it's the largest in the area. Now, this, by the way, Sheikh Arakat is known, and I document this in my book, he's one who ga- guarantees safe passage to the mm-hmm. land of the east uh, because it's dangerous in there. Brigands yeah. and robbers and bears. Oh, my. It's a dangerous place. <laughs> Not not bears, really. But uh, so he goes to Sheikh Erekat's house and he hears the story that about 10 years prior, the Wali of Damascus. Now, the Wali of Damascus is a provincial leader uh, during the Turkish reign, you know, during the Ottoman period. And yep. And so the Wali of Damascus is persecuting the Bedouin. We know this. Again, I'm going to kind of go fast over this part. Sure. Uh, But the Wali of Damascus is forcing Turkish rule and trying to put forward over these Bedouin tribes. Even today, the Bedouin don't like a lot of bosses, right? So they Mm want to be free. They want to live in the desert. They're Mm -hmm. Bedouin. They're men of the desert. So the, the Wali of Damascus Uh, is waging a war on him. He wants to take conscription. He wants to use the men in war, and he also wants to take their money for taxes. Mm -hmm. And he wants to civilize the Transjordanian region, which is a wild place at this time. It's it's not like in the U.S. we talk about the Wild West. This is the Wild East. Mm. So he chases, and these Bedouin are fleeing, and they find refuge in a cave High up in the Wadi Mujib is what right, it's called, right. which now, is let me, biblically. Let me interrupt you. Let me interrupt you once again. <laughs> because okay, you made – right, right, going back, uh, Daniel Wright. G'day again to Daniel. He, he did an excellent job of the cover of the Moses Scroll, your book. It's so beautiful. He really did an exceptional job. And it's just worth mentioning that the – uh, one the, more thing. Let me jump yeah? in the, the, the You know the old expression, don't judge a book by a cover? I, I've said since he produced this – I hope people judge my book by its cover. Go ahead. <laughs> it's just so good. So the picture there, of course, is of the entrance of the of the Wadi Mujib. Am I correct about that? That is the Wadi Mujib. We think that that's the exact area, uh, and he yeah. created that based on a photograph. It's a he turned beautiful it into photo. It looks really, yep. really good. Now, you and I have never been there. We've we've been, I mean, we go to Israel every year and God willing, we'll be back there soon. We're planning to do the Tanakh tour this November and there's still seats on the bus. People can join us. You can go to tanakhtours.com, uh, tanakhtour.com. There'll be a link underneath. Now, um, we have been, of course, uh, many times to En Gedi and a lot of our listeners uh, that have been to Israel probably have been to En Gedi. That's where... Uh, um, the the Wadi of David, uh, the the cave where he he, mm-hmm. he hid, uh, the waterfalls, this beautiful nature reserve uh, down there in the desert, and looking directly across the Dead Sea, directly across the Dead Sea from En Gedi is where the Wadi Mujib is. Keep going, Ross. Yep. And so these Arabs flee from the Wali and they find refuge in this cave high up in the Wadi Mujib, the biblical river Arnon, A R N O N. And inside the cave, they notice 
a bundle, uh, which seems to be wrapped in linen and coated in some sort of asphalt or bitumen, sort of a blackened substance. Mm. And uh, they, they quickly unwrap it, Jonah, what they expect, they hope that inside this wrapping is gold. Mm. And what they find are some black and leather strips and they throw them away, you know, like, what is this out of this Mm. isn't gold. And one of the Arabs decides, wait a minute, this might be a talisman. This might be good luck. Mm. So he picks them up. He takes them. He doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know what it says. He notices the strange writing. He brings it back to his tent. And over a period, he keeps them for about 10 years. And during that 10 years, he ultimately becomes a rich person, has a lot of sheep. He's like the the wealthiest Arab in the Bedouin tribe. Mm -hmm. So this is the owner of this. And this is the incident that is described in the home of Sheikh Arakat. Shapira is fascinated. He says, I want to get those. He ultimately comes to possess. We can't give the whole book away. He comes to possess these strips. It turns out there are 16 leather strips. He immediately begins to work. You know, it takes him about a month of meetings, secret meetings to gain the, to acquire Mm. all of the 16 strips. Sheikh Arakat dies. He can no longer make contact with the Arab. And, and so now he's got the whole of the manuscript. Mm Mm-hmm. He then begins to transcribe it, and he says, I think this is a form, it's a biblical text. It looks like the book of Deuteronomy. It's got some interesting differences, and uh, he believes that it could be the earliest manuscript, the earliest copy of Deuteronomy that's ever existed. Ever ever existed. So it's worth mentioning just again that this is a a manuscript in Paleo-Hebrew, in, in, a, in a Phoenician script, very, very, very old, and this is what he finds himself dealing with, painstakingly trying to decipher the letters on these blackened leather strips that are covered on one side with a, uh, a bitumen, a, a, um, uh, some sort of a pitch, uh, not mm-hmm. unlike the mummified uh, or, the, or the process of preserving uh, by, yep. the, by the Egyptians. And, and quite frankly, <clears throat> probably the reason why we... Uh, why it was available for him to look at uh, in 1878, Ross. Yep, and so he he becomes convinced of their authenticity. He writes at that time, in 1878, he sends a letter to Professor Schlotman. Remember him, Jono? He's the guy yeah. that said the Moabitica is real. Well, mm-hmm. now Schlotman's been burned. Schlotman is scared to death that uh, if his name gets associated with one more thing, his career is over if, ta- if Shapira's involved. So he, mm. he writes back and, and says this is a forgery. He doesn't even, you know, doesn't and, even and I give it. all the details in the book, mm. right? Uh, but but he, he rejects but he, he, it. So he had, Shapira, well, he ended up with egg on his face. And that is to say, by the way, that uh, some of the uh, uh, Moabitica that, that went through Shapira's hands or went through the shop – uh, via his uh, employee, uh, were declared to be forgery. It's not to say that they were all, uh, and we don't know what That's the percentage. Correct. We don't know the percentage of uh, um, forgeries versus uh, real. I mean, there's there's a question mark about that. But in any case, they were tainted with forgery, and Schlupman ended up with egg on his face, and uh, he wasn't even prepared <laughs> to go near That's something right. again uh, from Shapiro. Go. Yeah, and so he he puts it away. 
Shapira takes the scolding, which uh, is is very severe. And uh, he he really, you know, he figures, you know, it's not time. I've I've got a business to run. I'm I've very been very successful selling authentic manuscripts, and I don't know. Maybe you know, maybe it is. He doesn't know for sure. He feels convinced it was authentic. But Schlotman is a respected scholar, and so mm-hmm. Shapira puts it in a bank vault, and he he leaves it alone. Now, get this, Jonah. He leaves it there for five years. In, five a, in a safety deposit box in Jerusalem, years. in a bank vault yep. in Jerusalem, he leaves it there for five years, and he's like, uh, yeah, maybe it's all right, okay. There's That's something right. that triggers him to take it out of the vaults. Are we going to talk about that? Yep. Go for it. You know, I, I'll, I'll touch it. I'll touch it, and then I'll move past it. He comes mm-hmm. upon an academic work uh, by a guy by the name of Bleak, B, Bleak. Uh, B-L-E-E-K, uh, who was writing about uh, the very thing that I was doing research on when mm-hmm. Tabor introduced me to the Shapira thing. And so uh, he, he then thinks, wait a minute, maybe – Maybe I was right. Maybe this is an early form of the book of Deuteronomy. So he pulls it back out uh, around the time, he says, around the time of Easter. You know, it's about that time of the year Mm -hmm. uh, in Jerusalem. He pulls it out of the bank and uh, he looks at it again with this new acquired knowledge that he has. And now he he says, you know, this is authentic. I, mm. I was right the first time. He gets a sense determined. of confidence. Yeah. And he's determined. He knows. He begins to write letters to academics that he knows in Germany. Now, meanwhile, uh, another scholar by the name of Schroeder, Paul Schroeder, who we have, and I reference his work in my book, Schroeder is an expert on ancient Phoenician. Schroeder mm. sees the fragments and he says this is authentic. This is authentic. Now, this is the first academic who looked at it and and without hesitation declared them authentic. So Shapira writes to scholars in Germany first. The, he's, he's met with, uh, again, they've been snake bit, as we say. They're scared of this Shapira. He's already, mm-hmm. you know, this whole Moabitica thing, even though that's been 10 years, it's still in their memory. So he's pushed back, but he doesn't give up. He goes to uh, Berlin. He shows it to one person, person scared to touch it. He goes to another. Now, in, in Leipzig, he meets with two scholars who transcribe the document. They're German. Mm-hmm. They published a work in, uh, it was uh, in September in, of 1883, the work is published. Uh, I don't want to give too much away. Uh, this work was only in German. David and Patty Tyler have been involved in this hey, research Dave and Patty. as well. Dave and Patty unlocked the door for me, basically. Do you know, let, let me just stop uh, for a second. Me, stop one, yep. one second. I have to interrupt you once again. Uh, this time last year, you, me, Dave and Patty were in Jerusalem and um, just having a great time. And <laughs> I was thinking about it just the other day, and I really miss those guys. So I'm glad that you mentioned them. And I just wanted to shout out to Dave and Patty and thank you so much for all the work that you've done helping Ross do this research. Keep going, Ross. It's unbelievable. They asked me, what do you need right now? And I said, you know, one of the main things that would that could benefit us is if we had Herman Guta's work translated. Mm-hmm. And so they immediately got to work. Their company has a lot of different arms and different things. And, you know, they have so many different uh, contacts 
that uh, Dave and Patty Tyler ga- gave me a German translator, a brilliant young guy uh, by the name of Mitchell Gold. Mm-hmm. And, and Mitchell translated this work. And when I read it for the first time, Jono, it opened up so much that no one has covered. It was unbelievable. Mm. So with that knowledge, I began to build the backstory and, and we began to learn things that haven't been covered in another book. Mm. He, he spends one week with these two scholars, Guta and Meyer. Yeah. And uh, they're all excited. They believe it's authentic. The, he, he doesn't wait. He goes to Berlin for a meeting where a group of scholars immediately, they look at it. They spend about 90 minutes looking at it. They don't really tell him a whole lot. It's kind of up in the air as to how much they told him about the meeting. But he doesn't wait. He's waiting on Guta and Meyer to finish their work and publicize it. He goes to London in London, he decides to offer it. Now he's really confident. Mm. He is extremely confident in the genuineness of his document. He offers it there to the people at the British Museum for one million pounds sterling in 1883, John. 1883. Now, just tell us, Ross, that amount of money in 1883, what would it be worth today? What is that? What, what sort it's, of money are we talking now, I ran this model on several different websites, and it is easily upwards of 120 million U.S. dollars. That's amazing, isn't it? But but if this is authentic, Jono. If, if, if so, it is what he believed it to be, it would absolutely be worth that. It would have that price tag attached, if not more. Keep going. That's right. So he, he uh, uh, the British decide that they're going to assign a scholar by the name of Christian David Ginsburg. He's mm-hmm. well-known. His, his main work is about the uh, Masoretic text. He's brilliant. Even to this day, he's considered one of the most brilliant scholars in terms of uh, the Hebrew and the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Ginsburg spends about a month on it. Now, during that month, he publishes um, in periodicals. Newspapers around the world are reading this story. They're, they're waiting on pins and needles, not only in England, but also in Germany and in the U.S., all over the world. People are waiting on the next installment to come out. Ginsburg continually publishes uh, not only a translation, but a Hebrew transcription. This is where I got excited, Jono, because I had in my possession, as I was doing research now, the transcription of Ginsburg and the transcription of Guta and Meyer, mm-hmm. and I decided that I would put these two together, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. So, uh, and give people. I wanted to know. Remember, I said I wanted to know what the scroll said. And That's so, right. uh, you, you know, I mean, that was one of the the, the booming questions. Is isn't what that the most important? Say? That's the most important thing. I would thing. say. I mean, yeah. the, the the story is absolutely amazing. You're you're going over over at at a very high level, and I'm just saying to the listeners, uh, there is some riveting detail in the book. This saga, like you said, it has it's it's a real it's a real mystery. It's an adventure. Uh, you've you, the, the moment you start reading it, you can't put it down. Um, so once again, there's a a link under this post. Order the copy. As, as quickly as you can, you, you're really going to enjoy this. But the most important part of it is what's at the end. Ross, keep going. I tell you, th- this story has taken over every thought that I have almost. Mm-hmm. I wake up thinking about it. I go to bed thinking about it. 
this manuscript is ultimately, um, it's declared a forgery. I'll give everybody, it's like, you know, when I watch the movie Titanic, you're like, well, everybody knows the ship sinks, but it's the story <laughs> about the ship sinking. It's still, you got to know. Mm. But I was convinced, Jono, based on everything that I was studying, that it deserved a fair hearing. Yeah. We needed to look at it again. And here's why, Jono. Uh, I won't even talk about all the details, but uh, about a year from the time that Shapira pulls the manuscript out of the bank vault, a vault that was set up to store gold, mm. from a year, almost a year to the day, Shapira uh, is found dead in a hotel room in Amsterdam, in Rotterdam, mm. in the Netherlands. Mm. No one until my book has determined why was he in the Netherlands. Mm. I know. The book yep. tells the story. Now, he's discovered dead. The scroll is declared a forgery, and everything would have just gone away with the sands of time. Mm. Except, except this, Jono. In 1947, some Bedouin, this time west of the Dead Sea, on the mm -hmm. northwestern shore of the Dead Sea, at a place called Qumran, Kirbet Qumran, three Bedouin happened to go into a cave and discover what we now know as Cave One, and their discovery was the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, here's the interesting part, Jono. Every reason, almost every reason that they declared it a forgery in 1883 is made uh, moot by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yep. Here's, here's one example. In 1883, they had nothing to, with which to compare it, Jono. How, you know what they said? They said there is no way that in a cave... By the Dead Sea, a leather document could survive for thousands of years. And if it did survive, why would it be wrapped in linen? And if it were wrapped in linen, the linen certainly wouldn't survive. And then what's this black substance on the outside of the uh, mm. thing itself? This is crazy. It doesn't even make sense. It's it's a fake. It's a forgery. Mm. And here's another thing, Jono. They said this script is written in a continuous script, meaning like if you pick up a Hebrew Bible today, you read uh, the words Ele, Hadevarim, uh, you know, these are the words, they're separated. Uh, the, the Talmud records and others, the Dead Sea Scrolls prove this, that script was not broken out in words at the time. It was a continuous script. You had to read it, you know, as a flowing deal. Mm. I, I'm not going to give away all this because it's covered in the book. But what what it did was in 1947, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, it caused the world to check up and say, "Wait a minute. Mm. What what about that? What about that scroll that Shapira brought forward?" And so. There were a couple of scholars who stepped up and said, you know, this deserves a fair hearing. One yeah. is a man by the name of Menachem Mansour, who was a professor at Wisconsin. Uh, we have the famous, the well-known John Marco Allegro. Mm. Uh, he wrote a book called The Shapira Affair. I read all of these. All of their material is consolidated in my book now. And what was so fascinating about it is when they came forward in their time, uh, Menachem Mansour in the 50s and then sh and then Allegro in 65, they too were met with uh, a strong arm saying this is not true, it's fake, whatever, whatever. Well, I looked at the manuscript 
and I produced uh, within the book a what I would call a consolidated text. I took the manuscript transcription of Ginsberg in Hebrew mm-hmm. and the manuscript transcription of Gutemeyer, and I merged them into one document. This has never been done before. And so where the scholars saw the same characters, remember they were independently looking at it, so that one's not relying on the work of the other. Where they totally agree, letter for letter, I put that in black in my book in Hebrew. And where there were differences, I noted all the variations, without exception, every single variation. Mm -hmm. And then I took that Hebrew document and I translated it into English, which is also in the book. So for the first time, it's not the first time that a translation has been made. Uh, Ginsberg made one, which you've read, and, uh, and others have published this. But, but this was remarkably never done before. Now, there are brilliant people who are working on this that I have to stop and say, let, let me not walk through blowing a trumpet talking about the great work I did. I was very, very impressed and learned so much from uh, Hanan Tagay's book and mm-hmm. uh, Rabbi Fred Reiner, uh, who is in D.C. I had a conference call with him today. He's uh-huh. a brilliant scholar. And uh, we'll talk about that on another program. A lovely man, wonderful, wonderful guy. Uh, He's written articles on it. There are other people. Shlomo Gill is a a scholar, a researcher in Israel who's done remarkable work on the text. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, I relied on his work. He puts out, he has another document that he's published that says that Shapira's scroll was an authentic Dead Sea scroll. So here's Shlomo Gill. Uh, an Israeli researcher, brilliant scholar, he's saying this is authentic. This is an- it was ancient and it was authentic. Mm-hmm. Why was it dismissed? He he proves in his article that it was authentic. So I benefited from his work. Helen Jefferson, another scholar. So then whoa, whoa, I whoa, whoa. had to take hang on. a look. While we're, yep. Hang on, let me interrupt. While we're naming names, um, can I shout out to uh, fellow Australian Matthew Hamilton? I was just fixing to go there. <laughs> Matthew <laughs> Hamilton is probably uh, the guy in the world, the man in the world who knows more about Shapira than anyone. And and I can say not only because I believe that this gentleman has been so gracious. Uh, we've had, I don't know, dozens and dozens of uh, exchanges, James mm-hmm. Tabor and I with Matthew Hamilton uh, and, and he has sent us many things. Yoram Sabo uh, has been searching this for 45 years. Mm. He's published a book, which is only in Hebrew. But get this, Jono, David and Patty Tyler are, are currently working with Yoram Sabo to translate his book into English as oh, well. That's brilliant. That's Incredible brilliant. stuff. Um, and, and I don't want to leave anybody out. There's so many people. Uh, but their work is what made mine possible in many mm-hmm. ways. All I can hope is that I've contributed another piece to the Shapira growing research. Now, I was all excited that the book came out. I had this in my mind that uh, James Tabor and I talked about releasing the book on March the 8th. Why March the 8th? Because of two things. Um, Moses Shapiro was discovered dead in his hotel room on March the 9th, mm. 1884. And, and we believe that 
he died on March the 8th. Now, it's interesting that the day he died also ties in. It's in my story. It's very significant. I can't give that away because it's it's just too good. Mm, mm. But it was a certain Torah reading that corresponds with his death and, and unbelievable. The readers will be blown away. Uh, but not only in 1884, March the 8th, was it significant. Uh, I wanted to honor the man because I feel like he was wrongly labeled a forger. I think he brought to the world the oldest manuscript, the oldest biblical manuscript ever. Uh, but I also feel like, um, you know, in a way, it's I want people to begin saying, may his name and memory be for a blessing. You know, forever since 1883, mm-hmm. his name has been associated with forger, and that is wrong. If I didn't sell another book and, and it could exchange for redeeming his character, that's what I want to do. Mm. Because he was wrong, Jonah. He was very, very badly treated. So five years later to the day, uh, March the 8th, 1889, uh, the manuscript appeared in public for the last known time, and it disappears. Now, people have to read the book to get all these details. So I, I said it's only apropos that the book is released on that day. So mm. I didn't want to just upload it for worldwide distribution on Amazon on March the 7th, and something didn't work. I'd never done this. So again, it's nice to have a good friend by the name of Dr. James Tabor, who's mm. uploaded several books. By the way, the Genesis book is Paul book, everything. You know, he knows the ropes. Mm. So on February the 24th this year, I secretly uploaded the book. <laughs> I didn't tell anybody except you and James and the Tylers and a few close, close associates. I uploaded the book. And I wanted to get a copy of it and make sure it all worked, you know. Mm, mm. And I was talking to James on the phone and I looked at my Hebrew calendar and this is this just gave me chills. February 24th on the Jewish calendar was Adar 12. Mm. That is the same day that Moses Shapira died on the Hebrew calendar. That's right. In the year 1884. So I felt like it was a wink from heaven, like. You're doing the right thing, Ross. This is a way to vindicate Shapira's name and his honor. Mm. And and you've uploaded the document on the very day that he met his end. And so I was just floored by that. So February 27th, the next Shabbat, uh, I talked with some close friends and I said, you know, I'm going to tell my United Israel World Union audience about this. Let them go ahead and get the book early. They're my insider friends and the people that I know and love. And so we did that and they began to get it and read it. They've all loved it so far, at least the ones who've said Mm. something. You see pictures all over the web. Oh, the reviews have been excellent. Yeah, no, people are thrilled. It's it's going really well. The book shot up and it's only been out two weeks. It has consistently battled for the number one new release position. Mm. Uh, in two categories, on Amazon worldwide, and uh, it's doing really well. That in and of itself makes me feel great, I'll be honest. But again, to what we started with, to wake up this morning, the Shapira affair right. is going now, global. This, not so not this, because of my book. No, then this is yeah. a totally separate thing. This is, um, I mean, the topic is obviously related, but uh, but this is separate to you. Now, you mentioned obviously we, just going back in the conversation, um, uh, Guter, Meyer, Ginsburg. These guys scrutinized 
the uh, leather strips that Shapira brought to them. And at the time, as a result, it was all over the news. That's all anybody wanted to know about. I mean, even the prime minister came and looked at the um, the Shapiro uh, right. documents because there was a big buzz about it. Could it be what what it you know the, the potential of what this might be? And it was all over the news for for weeks. Now and, and you guess have, what this yep. this is going to be the same today. You watch it, it's going it's go already crazy. happening. It's already happening. That's so you've right. released this book two days later, and here we are uh, looking at the news, going, "How did this happen?" So once again, let's let's wrap this up with today's news. Yeah, Baruch Hashem. This could not be any uh, better news because it's, again, one of my main desires is that Shapira's name be vindicated. Mm -hmm. So here's why it's in the news. Not because of my book yet, but a scholar by the name of Idan Dershowitz, um, who is, let me just just open up his book and just, um, it was published today, Jono, the 10th Mm -hmm. of March. Don Dershowitz, born 1982, undergraduate, graduate training at the Hebrew University, following several years of yeshiva study, 2017, elected to the Harvard Society of Fellows, currently chair of Hebrew Bible and its exegesis at the University of Potsdam. This guy, guess what? Jono, Mm. he published a 217-page book. Mine's 218. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, get this. It is the perfect mirror to my book, but it's written for an academic audience. I'm reading mm-hmm. this book now. I can I only put it down to talk to your listeners. This is incredible because you know what he says? It was authentic and Shapira was wrongly labeled a forgery and he mm-hmm. spends 217 pages uh, now, unfortunately, many, uh, and this is not to put down on anybody, many of your listeners could probably pick it up and read it, but it's very academic. It's very deep. It's uh, philological. Yeah. yeah, it's very academic. So what my book does is it gives the accessible version of a vindication of Shapira and his scroll. And I, I cannot tell listeners uh, any stronger than it, yes, I, obviously, I want the book to be successful, but I promise you, the book is a great read. I mean, mm. I, it, it's been the joy of my life. It's, I've never been involved in, an, in a study like this. I'm so excited for it to come out. And, and even though listeners might think, well, I don't need to read the book now. I heard the podcast. Don't think that. <laughs> you need to don't read it. This is that. nothing. It's like we just dipped our toe in the Olympic swimming pool. No, um, you really need to get the book. You need to read it because, uh, as I said, the potential of what this manuscript is is enormous. And any student of, of the Bible uh, needs to have this in front of them. They need to pour over, pour over it like I have so many, many times. And uh, we won't do this now, Ross, but I'd love to talk about how I, because you mentioned how I got dragged in to this and, uh, and I am irreversibly compelled uh, in yeah. the topic. And, um, and I'd love to talk about that sometime. We'll do that very, very soon here on Truth To You. But you definitely need to get the book. I can't, now look, I've reviewed many, many books and talked about many books, promoted many books on Truth To You. This one is far, far <laughs> up on top of the list. 
Uh, this honestly, I can't recommend it highly enough. Order it today. Make sure you order one for a friend because you're going to want to give it to a friend or a family member. And uh, and and once you've done that, get on Amazon and give it a five star review. You're going to want to give it a five star review. Make it a, a a beautiful write up. We really would appreciate that. Let me add. Let me add one more thing. I tell you, the the one reason that they need to get caught up on it is because it, with the appearance in the and I haven't even checked it since we've been on the phone, but with it appearing in uh, England in the mm-hmm. Daily Mail, with it occurring in the New York Times, appearing in the New York Times, this is going to be worldwide news. It's yep. going to be all over the place. I promise you. Mark it down. It's going viral, and gonna go you're going to need. Your listeners are going to need to know what in the world are they talking about. Well, right. they they may not be able to to get easily uh, into Dershowitz, which is a brilliant piece. Yoram Sabo is uh, the longest running person who's chased this mystery down. He's done a video. Uh, he's a, a film producer. He produced a film that's called Shapira and I in 2014. I encourage people to watch that. Uh, James Tabor and I went to, we were invited to visit Yoram Sabo in his home. And uh, like I said, Dave and Patty Tyler are going to translate his book for him so mm. that he can publish it in English. But but here's the bottom line. You, you need to know about this because it is going, I believe, it is going to have ripple effects yeah. through biblical scholarship yeah. that I can't even fathom. I would have never anticipated, first of all, I would have never anticipated that the book would have done so well. Let's face it. I don't have a Ph.D. I mean, you know, I figured that my friends and my family would buy a copy and I would just be pleased to say, hey, I wrote a book and it's a fun subject. But now it's it's hitting it's hitting the world again. And I am hopeful that this does what I intend for it to do and that people a will get a good book to read. But B, that people will again say. Uh, may the name Shapira be for a blessing and his memory be for a blessing because he was wrongly accused of being a forger when actually I believe, Jono, that Moses Wilhelm Shapira in 1878 came to possess the single most important biblical manuscript discovery, get this, of all time. Mm-hmm of all time. Yeah. And and if people, you know, I want people to read it and let them make a decision. You know, at the end, I say, it's up to the reader. What do you think? Did I prove my case or did I not? And then right on the heels of that, Edan Dershowitz publishes his work. So uh, again, uh, we, we need to do it. James Tabor uh, told me we need to do this series on the Shapira scroll. Mm. We could talk about this for the rest of our days. We, if we, we live to be 120. Honestly, that's, I think we're destined to do that for the rest of our lives, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, the book is The Moses Scroll. It is available at Amazon. I've got a, a link uh, on this post that you can go to and order the book, order a couple of copies, because like I said, you're going to want to give one, if not more, to uh, friends and family. Uh, it really is that amazing. Ross Nichols, excellent job, my friend. Very proud to be your friend, I'll tell you what. Well, I, it, it's mutual, Jono, and I'm just happy that you've been there all along. And thank goodness that we could finally talk about this. And <laughs> and I am, I am pleased beyond uh, anything that the first public discussion about my book in this way 
was on Truth to You. You've been uh, my closest friend in the journey. We traveled to Israel together, uh, it, you know, and and thank thankfully James Tabor told me about this article on mm. December nineteenth, two thousand and nineteen. By the way, one more point of coincidence. I didn't re- really think to do this, but the day that I finished the rough draft was December the 19th, 2020, exactly one year to the day at 5.47 p.m. I closed the lid on my laptop and I said, it's done. Mm. And then I worked in. Now, now one other person we've got to give a shout out to. The book is, if it is good as I think it is, that is largely due to Don and Carol Walls. This, they... They are a fantastic, first of all, I love them to death for a lot of reasons, but but they took my work and, and edited it and helped me chapter by chapter, yeah. phrase by phrase. First of all, if you were to find an editor that knew the Bible, that'd be one thing. But Don and Carol not only are excellent editors, but they happen to be brilliant at the Bible. So mm. it, it involved this wonderful exchange between us. We worked closely for a year. Excellent. Uh, and they, they did this just a great job. And Anna designed the MosesScroll.com. I think a lot of other people in the acknowledgments. So please don't be offended. I, I just, I'm not naming everybody tonight, but these people uh, deserve all the credit for all the great things that they did. And look, one other thing about Tabor, when we found some letters that have not been translated into English, which also Dave Tyler and Patty are going to get translated mm-hmm. for us uh, uh, accurately by uh, Mitchell again, but James is also fluent in German. Mm. So he went and found these German letters, which provide the backstory that's never been published. Never before. been re- Yeah, it's that's in, right. It's, been, it's in the book. It's in the book. And, and no it's one knew this stuff. Yep. Now, I'm glad you mentioned the website again. So themosesscroll.com, if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with the Moses Scroll, you can go there and sign up for, notif- uh, for notifications for emails and you will be kept up to date. We're going to be talking about this forever and ever. Uh, so we'll be back on the air talking about the, the Moses Scroll and various... Uh, so you're going to want to get the book to your listeners. Get, get on, get the book, stay with us because uh, this isn't going anywhere soon. That is, and we, we didn't even tell them, and we're not going to tell them tonight. This is it, Jonah. we got to cut it in here. But we're listen, we got to cut it. But it's we haven't even talked about what the manuscript says, <laughs> and that's in the book, too. There's no end to it. Uh, make sure you leave a comment, dear listener, once you get hold of the book. We would love to hear what you have to say about the book. So please leave a comment on this post uh, on Facebook, and certainly five-star reviews on Amazon certainly helps. That is it. Thank you so much. Ross K. Nichols, The Moses Scroll. I'm looking forward to having another discussion very soon. I am too, Jono. This has been fun. And uh, thanks to the listeners of Truth To You. Uh, I know that you'll love the book. I I hope that you love the book. I'm pretty sure you will. Please go get it. You got to check it out. You need to keep up. The world's talking about Shapiro's scroll. You're going to say, I heard about it on Truth To You. Yeah, that's right. Now you're going to want to say, you know, I heard about it on Truth To You. I bought a couple of copies of the book. I'm well familiar. What do you want to know? That's what you're going to want to say. (laughs) All right. right. Have a good one, dear listeners. We'll be speaking to you soon. Blessings.